are continuing this morning in our series on 1 Corinthians, specifically that part of 1 Corinthians dealing with human sexuality. Some of you will be delighted to know that after today we only have two more weeks of this. Others may feel otherwise. Um, So this sermon is rated PG-13, and that is because of the nature of the uh, material that we're dealing with. A couple weeks ago, in looking at uh, the question of how we construct a properly Christian ethic of human sexuality, we looked at the traditional view, the traditional understanding that uh, God has given sex as a good gift to human beings to be enjoyed within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Last week, we looked at a variation Uh, on this, arguably, or some would say not a variation at all, but in fact a complete upending of the traditional view, uh, which would hold that God has given sexual intimacy to be enjoyed by people in the context of any committed monogamous marriage, whether between a man and a woman, between a man and a man, or between a woman and a woman. And the reason why that could be argued, we discussed last week, is that the passages we find in Scripture which seem to prohibit that kind of behavior, uh, it's argued, were written by people who did not know of the possibility that you could have people involved in a mature, adult, mutually consensual, same-sex relationship. The argument is that when Paul was condemning Gentile wickedness, and gave examples of Gentile wickedness that included both generic sexual immorality, porneia, and specific types of sexual immorality. Uh, speaking of those who were the malachoi and the arsenikoitai, that Paul was, in fact, speaking of the only human sexuality, uh, or the only uh, same-sex sexual activity that he knew, namely behavior that was exploitative, behavior that involved people exercising the power they had over slaves or over people younger than they were, people who would utilize same-sex activity as a means of exercising dominance. And so it it was argued by folks who hold to this view, if Rabbi Paul had in fact encountered a same-sex couple that was mature, that was of the same social status, that was of the same age, who came to him and said, we agree with everything you have said, Paul, about the nature of human sexuality, that it is not good for a person to be alone. And that, in fact, God has made us to want to bind ourselves to another person for life and to be in relationship and to express with one another the sexual intimacy that we've been made for. We don't feel like we're called to be celibate. We don't think we could handle that. We think we're supposed to be living out this life of intimacy with one another. And we know that that is not the traditional way of understanding this, but this is the way we think God has made us, and this is the way we want to live. And according to this view, Paul would say, I had never thought of that. That had never occurred to me, but this seems like a variation on the theme, and so 
we can go ahead and endorse this kind of behavior. Today, I want to look at a, a similar but different approach, which is to understand that Paul would not have, at that time, approved of this, but that if he were around today, if we could resurrect Paul early and tell Paul everything that we know now that he did not know 2,000 years ago, that he would approve of this sort of thing, a committed same-sex relationship. And again, I, I need to say with all of this, the reason we're looking at these different points of view is that we find ourselves at a time and a place where the church is deeply divided over issues of human sexuality. And a great many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have decided that the way to deal with that situation is to uphold one particular view and to condemn those who hold different views. That happens on both sides. That happens among traditionalists. That happens among progressives. There are also those, and we would be one of those churches, who say we are called to be in relationship with one another despite our differences on this issue. The uh, uh, Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, came out with a common state. They had a, a, a meeting the first time in 50 years that the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury had gotten together, and they, they came out with a lovely statement uh, this week which said in part that, that uh, the, the differences that divide us are not greater than our shared faith and our common joy in the gospel. And so it has seemed right to us that we look at the different ways people understand this issue and these texts with as much charity and respect and grace as we can muster to people of all opinions on this. Not at all suggesting that all opinions may be equally valid, but looking at the strengths and weaknesses of each. And again, as I have said before, not at all departing from New Hope's traditional teaching, that the traditional view is the best one, uh, the best way to understand what God has given us in Scripture, but also recognizing that our brothers and sisters in Christ are in different places on this. So again, when we lay out these different perspectives, uh, as they say when they do the editorials on the radio, the opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management. So, this question of what would, uh, of understanding a difference between Paul, what Paul would have said 2,000 years ago and what he would say today really strikes to the question of how it is that we read Scripture. Now, is anybody familiar with the Anglican tripod? The Anglican tripod, this is not like when a bishop takes a picture with a camera. The Anglican tripod is uh, that we understand God and what he has to say to us primarily through three influences. Those being scripture, tradition, and reason. Now, John Wesley, who was an Anglican, uh, also added on experience. So you get the Wesleyan quadrilateral Although in a lot of ways, I think reason ends up uh, aligning with, with experience in terms of how this works. Basically, if you're trying to understand, for example, 
how it is that we can honor God with our bodies, we would look to Scripture and see what we find there. We would look to tradition and see what the church has taught over the years. And we would consider our own experiences and think about what things make sense, what things seem to be just and right and fair. And so, uh, where this comes out as a practical matter is that in different traditions, one of these ends up getting more weight. One of these usually ends up swinging to the top of the tripod, all right? So in the Roman Catholic tradition, generally speaking, tradition ends up at the top with Scripture and with reason and experience informing the way in which tradition is understood. Catholic understanding of Scripture, of course, uh, is that it is basically the beginning of the tradition, and Scripture is only properly interpreted according to the traditional interpretation of the church. So this would be the, the Roman Catholic way of looking uh, at, at, this, uh, at this way of understanding uh, what it is God has for us, and that would also be shared, uh, generally speaking, by the Orthodox churches. You have the, uh, the evangelical approach, what we have generally followed here at New Hope, where Scripture is, in fact, at the top. We use tradition and reason and experience in our interpretation of Scripture, but we understand Scripture to be primary, Right? This should not come as a surprise to anybody who's hung around here anytime. And you also have uh, the liberal tradition in which reason or experience becomes primary. Reason or experience will swing to the top of the triad. And we understand, we use tradition and scripture to understand the world that we live in. But it's basically our understanding of the world that we live in, what makes sense to us and what fits with our experience that fits, uh, that, that enables us to, uh, to make sense of tradition and Scripture. All right, any questions on this? This is like basically a volume worth of, or a, a whole shelf full of hermeneutics in, in five minutes. But anything? Okay. So, um, okay, sure. So, for example, let's take Thomas Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson, <coughs> when, he, <coughs> when he looked in the Gospels, he saw all these stories about Jesus healing people, Jesus performing miracles. But Jefferson said, I know, based on reason and having experienced the world as it really is, that that doesn't happen. So I am going to use my understanding. In, in Jefferson's case, he actually corrected Scripture. He created his own version of the Gospels where he cut out all the miracles which saves you a lot of time. Um, uh, and so he would say that the traditional understanding that Jesus actually did perform miracles needed to be corrected by reason. Our, our, our knowledge, our understanding that that can't happen, right? And that we need to read this story in Scripture if we're going to read it at all, and Jefferson didn't want to. But if you're going to read it at all, you need to understand it in some sort of a, a symbolic way or you need to understand it as the expression of, of a you know, in more... Uh, uh, modern times would be the, this is the expression of the community that, uh, that created this particular gospel and wanted to demonstrate Jesus' superiority. And so they, they made up this story about Jesus' healing. 
Does that help? Okay. Yes, Becky. Mm -hmm. Well, so the interesting thing about the Episcopal Church is you're going to find all of these within the Episcopal Church. You're going to find all these within the Anglican Communion more broadly, but specifically within the Episcopal Church. Uh, you're going to find all of these. You're going to find some very uh, high Anglo-Catholic folk in the Episcopal Church um, who are most interested in the witness of tradition. Um, in fact, you'll have people in the, in the, uh, who, are, who are high Anglo-Catholics who would believe that same-sex marriage is appropriate, but out of respect for tradition would not practice it. Out of their respect for the, uh, the, the convictions of their uh, Roman Catholic and Orthodox and other traditional Anglican brothers and sisters would not practice it. You're going to have, uh, uh, certainly you have plenty of progressive Episcopalians who would say that, no, we, we need to privilege uh, the experiences we've had of people uh, engaged in uh, fruitfully in same-sex lifelong relationships. And you do have evangelicals among uh, Anglicans, and you still have some among Episcopalians who, at the end of the day, say, whether I like it or not, this is what Scripture says. And so even though I have a hard time understanding it, uh, understanding why it is just, understanding why it is right, even though it makes life difficult for me, I feel like I have to follow that. Does that help? Okay. Any other questions on this? All right, so let's, let's take a look. Um, uh, uh, first of all, the, the, where this comes from, where, where this whole idea of maybe it, it's the case that somehow we're reading these texts wrong that seem to uh, prohibit uh, same-sex behavior comes from the experience of either people themselves experiencing same-sex attraction and believing that there has to be some other way to honor God with their bodies uh, than being celibate or being in a heterosexual marriage. Um, it also comes from people, and, and a number of the books that have come out on this, really, in, in the, and, and there's just there's a, 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 been an avalanche of them uh, even in the last five years, um, from people who have been the teachers of people who have experienced same-sex attraction. Bible college or seminary professors who have experienced their students and experienced the pain and the difficulty their students experience living in a traditional setting where they're taught that, that uh, same-sex behavior is, is inappropriate and what that gets internalized as is being gay is wrong and there's, therefore there's something wrong with me and therefore I'm bad and there's something defective about me. The compassion and care and desire to, uh, to affirm these people in, in their very essence of who they are has led folks to, to say, this experience and, and my reasonable understanding that somehow this isn't fair uh, forces me to re-examine this, this scripture and to see if there's a way that I'm reading it wrong. Chris? Generally speaking, yes, the, 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 the triads can spin. Uh, although for the most part, in a, you know, the, 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 where, where, they, where they land after spinning for a while, 
among traditionalists is with tradition on the top, among evangelicals with scripture on top, and among liberals with reason or experience on top. So uh, an evangelical reading of that would say, no, you don't stone disobedient teenagers, um, not because you think it's unreasonable or you have experienced teenagers who once were disobedient, become which it's prescribed in Torah, a disobedient teenager is to be stoned and not like, you know, the, you know, the thrown rocks at and killed stone. Um, and, and so the, the, uh, the tradition would say, well, we have, a, we have a, 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 a history of interpretation of that verse, which means we don't stone teenagers. And the liberal approach would, would say, that's ridiculous. I've experienced plenty of teenagers who come out okay, even though they were completely impossible to deal with when they were 15. And then um, the, the, the evangelical view would be to say, well, no, I mean, that, that may have been law given for a particular people at a time and place, but we're not a nation state, and, um, and, and therefore uh, many of the laws that were given to Israel and Torah were strictly given for the administration of a nation state, and we would not, uh, they would not transfer over. So, um, so uh, the other thing, the other bit of experience that has been part of this, and especially this has been influential for, uh, for pastors who have written some of these books, is that they have experienced people who are in committed same-sex relationships who seem to be healthily involved in committed same-sex relationships. That seems to be the kind of relationship where you would want to get up on a Sunday morning and say congratulations to, instead of Chris and Debbie, congratulations to Adam and Steve on 17 years of marriage today, right? And it, they, they seem to be living lives where they're faithful to one another, where, where the, the marriage that they're living out is a means by which they are, are growing in God's grace, by which they're being progressively sanctified, they're, they're, they're a stable part of, of society, maybe they're raising children well. Um, and so they would say, that it, how, ca- how can this not be okay? Maybe we need to go back and read this again. So let's look at how these, this, this different approach, this approach of saying, okay, maybe, we, maybe Paul would have not seen this 2,000 years ago, but maybe if he knew what we knew today, he would be all right with this. Let's see how this cashes out in the story of Sodom, which is often used to, uh, uh, as part of the, the justification for opposing same-sex activity. Now, I'm sure most of you have this, had the same experience when your kids ask you to tell them a story. You say, you know, once, in a, once upon a time there was a man named Lot. <laughs> and his uncle was Abraham, and Lot went and he dwelt in Sodom, which was a very wicked place. And one day, a couple of angels came to Lot's house, and they were staying with him. And then all the men of the town came around the house and demanded that the angels come out so that they could rape them. But Lot said, no. Instead, I'll send out my daughters so you can rape them instead. And the angels said to Lot and his family, you need to get out of here right away because God is about to destroy this wicked, terrible city. And they did, except Lot's wife looked back and she got turned into a pillar of salt. And then Lot's daughters, given the dysfunctionality of the family at this point, got Lot drunk two nights in a row and had children by him. This is why I don't get called the babysit, by the way. Um, but, yes, the, what, what did, the, what did the, the wicked townspeople of Sodom say to Lot? 
bring these men out so that we may know them. And that doesn't mean they wanted to exchange recipes. They wanted to violate them physically. And oftentimes, you, have, you may have heard that the problem in Sodom was not sexual immorality, specifically same-sex sexual immorality. The problem in Sodom was actually one of a lack of hospitality. And you have a parallel passage, a story in Judges, which, in which uh, case the, the, uh, the guest in the house uh, sends out his concubine, who is raped all night long, uh, rather than his two daughters. Um, so some have said, well, the problem in, in Sodom was that the people were not hospitable to strangers, but in fact they were, uh, they were violent and abusive. And the broader problem of Sodom was that it was so degenerate, so depraved, so caught up in gratifying all kinds of perverse desires that it was willing to violate ancient Near Eastern codes of hospitality to violate two guests of a sojourner among them. And one place where where, uh, this idea is given support is in the book of Ezekiel, which I'm sure you're happy to turn back to. Or in Ezekiel chapter 16, an especially fun part of Ezekiel, later on in verse 49, we read, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the other cities of the plain, Adma and Zeboim, they were all destroyed not because they were dens of, of sexual immorality, not because they were dens of homosexual perversion, as you might think from the way that the word sodomy has in fact been used in the construction of things like sodomy laws, which would prohibit same-sex behavior, in addition to the same kind of behavior on the part of heterosexual couples in some places. But the real problem with Sodom was not sexual immorality. The real problem was, was uh, a lack of hospitality, was arrogance, was uh, being overfed and failing to care for the poor and needy. The problem with this is that if we look to the first century, if we look to contemporaries of Paul and contemporaries of the New Testament, uh, they all think Sodom is wicked because of sexual perversion. Um, And if we look in the places where Sodom is mentioned in the New Testament, uh, specifically in regard to what was going on there in in, uh, Jude and 2 Peter in parallel passages, we find in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to help, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. 
Jude is a little more specific. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave them up to sexual immorality. And you probably have in your, if you're reading NIV, it says sexual immorality and perversion. Literally gave themselves up to sexual immorality, lusting after strange flesh or chasing after strange flesh. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so, according to the idea that understanding the things we know now, the reality of what seemed to be entirely wholesome, committed same-sex relationships, we would look at this story and say, no, the problem in Sodom was not, as most Jewish sources of the first century, and as it seems Second Peter and Jude would think, the problem was not that there was sexual immorality and homosexual behavior going on in Sodom. The problem really was one of violence. And so when we understand what Paul is saying in condemning the behaviors he condemns in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans 1, the problem is not same-sex behavior. The problem is exploitative same-sex behavior. Same-sex behavior that uses power as leverage, that abuses those who are unable to protect themselves. What we need to do is recognize that just like the lions on the picture on the cover of your bulletin, there are some people who are just born that way. This, by the way, I have to give it up to Chris West, who took this picture from the wall of a very conservative church where they have a, a Noah's Ark drawing where somebody put gay lions. You notice they both have manes, which means they're both male lions. Which I think is fun. I just, the whole idea of like Noah's Ark as a story for kids, like basically, you know, there's the cute animals and then there's genocide. But anyway. So when we look at the texts, the relevant texts this way, you can think of it like this. Think of it of five possible outcomes. Like today, this afternoon, there will be people challenging calls on the field and the red flag will be thrown. And the ref will go under the hood, and then he'll come out from under the hood. And he may say, upon further review, the previous ruling is overturned. That's what we were talking about last week. The idea that when you really look at these passages in context, and you understand what Paul would have thought, what he would have been aware of at the time, Actually, he would have been fine with committed same-sex relationships. He just didn't know of anyone. So we should not read his condemnations of same-sex behavior as, as blanket condemnations. We also could say, upon further review, the previous ruling is reinterpreted, which is the kind of perspective that you would take if you say, well, sure, 2,000 years ago, Paul wouldn't have made sense of this, but but today, knowing what we know now, if Paul had, in fact, been exposed 
to the experience of committed same-sex couples in generative, healthy relationships. And, and if he had understood the, the, the pain that people who experience same-sex attraction go through when they feel like they're being forced into one end zone or the other, either celibacy or heterosexual marriage. If, if Paul knew the things we knew now about how homosexuality is, is not a choice, that basically three or four percent of people are attracted exclusively to members of the same sex, and that, that is not something that can be adjusted much by things like counseling or upbringing then Paul would say, okay, it makes sense knowing what we know now. Another way of getting to this is by using what's called a redemptive movement hermeneutic or trajectory hermeneutic, where you see that what God uh, provides in various places in the biblical story and in, in salvation history is a, a significant improvement ethically over what was going on in the nations around them. So you would see some things in, uh, in uh, uh, Torah, for example, the stoning of rebellious teenagers. Um, well, around then, you wouldn't have due process before you stoned a rebellious teenager. So uh, this is an improvement. And then eventually, you get to the point where rebellious teenagers aren't stoned. This is often an approach used in understanding the place of, of women in ministry. That at one point, uh, Paul simply, Jesus simply by, by uh, teaching women was doing something radical. And Paul in the churches, by having women be taught, was doing something radical. And that is, we understand the way that this is, has, that uh, our understanding of gender has developed, we now understand that, that, that roles of leadership or teaching, which at one point might have been restricted, should no longer be restricted. So, upon further review, the previous reading would be reinterpreted. That's also the case that the ref can come out from the hood and say, upon further review, the previous reading is confirmed. When he says the previous reading is confirmed, he says, I've looked at the replay and I see that the right call was made and I'm confident the right call was made. And certainly plenty of folks have done that. Plenty of folks have read the evidence, have looked at all the arguments, have considered the various ways of understanding this uh, the, the different perspectives on this question and have said, no, the, the traditional perspective is the correct one and we're quite sure of that and we feel entirely comfortable moving on on that basis. The fourth possibility is that upon further review, the previous reading stands, which means that the ref couldn't find enough evidence to overrule the previous call But he didn't see enough to confirm it. And there are plenty of people who on this particular issue bear a certain amount of discomfort with the place that they've come to. They can't find enough reason to budge off of the traditional view, but they still have a great deal of unease about it and frankly would welcome the argument or the evidence that would enable them to move to a more per permissive posture. And then, of course, you get the fifth option, which is upon further review, the text is ignored. And you don't really care what Paul would have thought then or now. And you just do as you see fit. 
which is what we'll be talking about next week. Let's pray. Lord God, as your people, I pray that we would always be faithful to follow as you lead, and that in the various ways you enable us to understand your will, that we would in all things and at all times be submissive to the voice of your Spirit in the many ways that it communicates to us. We pray that we would be a community formed for your glory, the welfare of your people. In Christ's name, amen.